A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. What a veritable feast of sports we have on offer on the show this week. The world's leading women's amateur golfer Lydia Ko finally announces she'll turn professional. We find out just how much time $5 million buys Team New Zealand. We head to Oklahoma with New Zealand basketballer Stephen Adams on the verge of his NBA debut. We talk to Hayden Patton as he prepares for his WRC rally debut. And we preview the Wellington-Canterbury rugby NPC final and hear from the all-black lock Jeremy Thrush. And the Silver Ferns try to regain some confidence in their series against Malawi. Well, if you can beat me, you can definitely handle the pressure of going pro. Must be time now. OK, I'll do it. What? I'll do it. Do what? Turn pro. Right here, right now. Yep, right now, right this second. Definitely. Yes! <laughs> and with yes! that YouTube video <laughs> with All Black Israel Dag, the Women's World Golf number 4, 16-year-old Aucklander Lydia Ko finally announced she was joining the sports professional ranks. Ko will play her first event as a professional at the LPGA season-ending tournament in Florida next month. Alex Coogan-Reeves spoke to New Zealand Golf's chief executive, Dean Murphy, who told him Ko's move to the professional game has been a long time in the making. We've been you know, working closely with Lydia for many, many years and certainly across all the discussions around when to turn professional and, and how and all that sort of thing. So we've been really involved. And you know, at the end of the day, Lydia's made the, the best possible decision and I think her timing is outstanding. And she's done a um, done New Zealand proud uh, in the past and now she heads off into the professional world to certainly do us proud in the future. So we've been quite involved in that and will continue to be so. She's a great Kiwi girl and we, we couldn't be more proud of her. You say the timing's right now. What is it about now that um, makes it a good time for her to um, enter the professional ranks? She's number four in the world. She's won a number of times as a professional on major tours. She certainly has the game. She has the temperament and the personality, and I think she's at a level of maturity now that, uh, to me, um, you know, personally, I think she's she's very, very ready for this game. I mean, a lot of people talk about the transition from amateur to professional, when's the right time, and people always say you should stay in the amateur game as long as you can to hone your skills and, you know, let your level of maturity get to a point where you can compete on the world stage. Lydia's proved that, and I think the time is right for her to now go out there as a professional and compete against all the other professionals around the world. Obviously, you would have seen her growth across a number of years uh, through New Zealand golf. What What's the biggest um, sort of change in her you've noticed or that makes you think that she's she's definitely ready now? Well, I mean, Lydia's a very worldly girl these days. She's travelled, you know, substantially over the last couple of years. And I think, you know, where her talent has developed, uh, you know, over the last few years, there's no question of it. But her, her personality and her temperament, her ability to deal with, you know, what the world has to offer and, and you know, all the trappings of travel and, uh, you know, big professional events and those sort of things. She's very, um, very well prepared and very used to it now. And I, I just think she's grown up a hell of a lot in the last few years. And thankfully, she still has that charm of a young 16-year-old that is, um, you know, we, we hope she'll never lose. Wonderful personality, great golf game. And she's just ready now to go on to the next stage. She's certainly not your average 16-year-old, is she? No, she's not, and um, you know I think that's what's cool about her. She, 
you know, announcing to the world she's turning professional via Twitter. Great example of, you know, her, her kind of personality and the way she wants to do things and wants to be a bit different, but um, has an amazing talent that uh, we'll certainly see on the front page of papers for years to come. So as far as her plans from here, is do you know if her plan is next year to go uh, full-time on the LPGA tour? Yeah, that's certainly the plan from here. Um, there's obviously a lot of events across New Zealand and Australia in the summer, and they'll make a big, big part of her schedule, and then um, you know up to America to play a trade full-time in the LPGA Tour next year is the plan. So, and she'll be back for the New Zealand Open? Yeah, she certainly will. She'll be back to defend her title, and we're looking forward to having her there. Where do you see her potential as a golfer? Is there there's sort of no ceiling on where she could go from here? I don't think so. I mean, her amateur career is certainly among the very best of, of either gender that the game has ever seen. Uh, and, you know, currently ranked four in the world, clearly the number one ranking Olympic medals and major titles are, are on her pathway forward. And, you know, hopefully she can, you know, continue to break the record she she does, um, you know, that she has over the last few years. I think the sky's the limit. She's certainly got a burning ambition. And, you know, I look forward to seeing her on the Olympic, uh, on the Olympic medal tally and, uh, and also a major champion in years to come. I guess her success as an amateur is pretty unprecedented. It's hard to see anyone ever topping what she's done. You certainly wouldn't have thought it. It's a record that is, um, you know, is, is just staggering and continues to, um, you know, impress every time you have a look at it. And you know, I think it will be among the best, very best amateur records ever seen in the game. Um, you never know, but um, it's certainly hard to see anyone topping her achievements. There's a lot of earning potential for her, not just in prize money, but also um, with potential sponsorships and things like that. Do you know if she's um, signed any sort of management deals or if that if that's in the works at the moment? Oh, there's, there's lots of discussions going on. Lydia's an incredibly marketable and popular young girl with a great personality, so her value... You know, off the course as an honour is going to be uh, going to be significant. So a lot of discussions happening currently, but uh, no formal announcements as yet. Would it be fair to say that she has the potential to be the highest paid sports person in New Zealand in the not too distant future? Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's going to depend how she goes, but certainly has that potential. Um, there's a lot of money on offer in the in the women's professional game, and she has an ability to compete at that level that she's proved already. So, you know, that's certainly the potential. But I think for now, um, Lydia has her head down, worried about making a successful transition, and you know, she'll look to get her first year under her belt and see where she can go. But uh, certainly, huge potential there. The only thing is now the pressure becomes a bit bit more when uh, you're playing for cash. Well, I guess so. I don't think Lydia's personality or approach will change, but um, I guess that's uh, the pressures that come when you're dealing in the money game. So I'd be interested to see how she, she deals with that. I mean, it's, she's no stranger to this environment. She's been playing in that environment for a good couple of years now and, and doing very well. But, yep, unique pressures now, and uh, I think Lydia's right up for the challenge and, and secretly looking forward to it. So uh, we, uh, we couldn't be more proud and look forward to supporting her as she goes forward. From a New Zealand golf point of view, I guess over a number of years you've probably made a significant um, investment in Lydia and Lydia's future. How how do you see ways of um, now leveraging that and growing New Zealand golf? Well, I think Lydia's been, um, you know, her success alone in the last few years has uh, has been wonderful leverage for us to profile and promote the game of golf, and I only see that increasing in the future. I mean, we invest a lot in young players as they come through. Um, our belief is that if Kiwis are winning on the world stage, it inspires more people to play the game and be interested in the game, and Lydia certainly is having that impact on golf in New Zealand, and that can only increase in the future. That's New Zealand Golf's Chief Executive Dean Murphy talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves. Emirates Team New Zealand has set a May deadline of deciding whether or not it will mount a challenge for the next America's Cup. 
This week, the government announced it would provide $5 million in funding for Team New Zealand to retain key personnel over the next six months as it tries to secure sponsorship for another challenge. The syndicate's chief operating officer, Kevin Shoebridge, says without the government funding, many of their design and innovation staff would have been lost, with competing syndicates already approaching them. This will keep us going till May next year at least, um, and that, that will give us time to get ourselves organised. Um, Grant is off to Europe in a couple of weeks, doing a circuit of all the, the main sponsors, and by that time we will also have a rule, the, the protocol and the rule, uh, will come out probably sometime around February. How much input are you getting to that? Uh, well, at this stage, very little. Um, but uh, rumour has it that there's going to be a meeting in November. And the challenger of record has an obligation to, to contact the challengers, um, especially taking into consideration that they haven't been in this game before and, and, and we have for a long time. So I would imagine they'll be quite desperate to hear our input um, as they are our representative as such to, to what the um, the next cut should look like. There's sort of been rumours, but again, rumours won't mean anything. Um, we've sort of got an idea and, and assuming that we're going to be in large multi-hulls multi again and, and probably in San Francisco. You were after, what, $6.5 million initially from the government, were you? Uh, uh, initially we were, yes. So um, how much of a, a setback is it not getting that? And what does that actually mean? Does that mean you can't hold on to some people you might otherwise have wanted to? No, no not necessarily. We're just going to have to try and um, find that extra bit um, in other avenues, um, either by you know private, privately or, or by existing sponsors. It was really just to allow us to keep developing um, the technology and the design tools at the level that we want to. Basically, the day the rule comes out, uh, whenever that is, you, you need to be up and running and you need to be able to start immediately. That's why it's important that we keep these this key group of guys together. Some relief, though, that you actually did get something from the government because the, the noises coming from the Prime Minister just a couple of months back were that there wasn't going to be any funding. Well, you know, it certainly has been. You know, it, it, It's been a real boost for us. I, and I think, you know, that last couple of weeks up in San Francisco, I think everyone realised, you know what a great event it was, and, and I and I think it's it's a great thing. It's a great vehicle to showcase New Zealand and what it has to offer. So um, we're pretty happy, and, and I, I hope the government are happy with the investment as well. How tough is it deciding on those that that are going to get a, a chunk of this to stay? Because what well, how how big's your team, and how many are you going to be able to keep on the payroll in the interim? It's actually really tough. Uh, we've got a team of 107 people. Uh, and we're really, we're probably talking um, somewhere around mid 40s as a number. Um, but in saying that, you know, it's it's not it's not a job for life. And there are certain uh, the the team gets bigger and progresses as the three years go go on. There is no requirement to have a team that large in the first two years. You know, you're probably not sailing the big boats until 2000, late 2015 and 16, where you need a lot of the support guys. So I, you know, they understand that it's not the end of the road, they they will know that there was always going to be this period where they go back to normal life for a while, then come back and join the team. We're not saying that we don't want you anymore. It's just not required at the moment. So who who gets to make those decisions about who who gets on the payroll? Well, there'll be there'll be a small group of us which will consist of you know, Grant and myself and Dean Barker and Nick Holroyd, who's head of the design group, uh, maybe one or two others. Uh, and we will start having those meetings within the next week, basically. 
the cost has obviously been a big discussion point. What, what, I suppose, from Emirates Team New Zealand's point of view, would be an appropriate budget so that the costs maybe, well, obviously did distract or, or detract many teams from yeah. from competing? Well, yeah. Cost reduction is a, is a must, and it, and it must happen if this regatta is, is going to survive and attract more teams. But you will always have the teams, especially some of these teams that are run by the billionaires, that will just throw money at it. That's just the way it is. But I think what they've got to do is make the rules such that someone can compete on a, a more realistic budget and actually have a realistic chance of, of winning. And um, I was actually watching an interview that Russell Coates did on TV last night, and he was talking about you know, halving the existing budgets. Well, that would be great uh, if that could happen. And, and it's really up to them to make the rules as such that that, that can happen. And that, that might be less boats, it might be uh, portions of the boat might be one design, so you, you save a lot of um, resource and, and manpower and money on design. So all those things will help, but that's, that's really in their court. Is there a preference from Team New Zealand's point of view? I mean, would a fixed budget argument, say $70 million, be be good or you're mentioning there obviously fixed design and basically everyone has the same part of a boat is there a preference from your point of view yeah it's well i think it's almost impossible to to run a team to a fixed budget you know everyone's different and there's you know we do things more reasonably priced here in new zealand than they do up there in europe for example so i all i think you can do is is try and stop the team spending by by um, retaining the rules as such that it can't get out of control. Um, and the challenge of record, I think that'll be the, the team from Hamilton Island who is the challenge of record. I think they'll be very strong on trying to negotiate um, good, meaningful cost reduction. Is there an argument, or, or would it even be possible, that basically everyone had the same boats, full stop? Yep. Yeah, that, that's a possibility. Like, we've done that with the AC-45s, obviously, the smaller boats that we have used the, the couple of years before. That, that's that's one, of the, um, one of the thoughts. You know, people say, oh, it's not the America's Cup because you're, you're taking away the design aspect, but you've got to decide what's more important, uh, a design race or having more teams involved. Um, so I'm sure that's one of the things that will be discussed. If not the whole boat, a whole boat, there might be elements of the boats that are one designed to... Um, take a lot of cost out of it and also if you're a new team you want to be able to come in and know that you're going to be on a level playing field and that you can compete so that might work from uh, a couple of various angles actually. Has the government given you any sort of maybe not an assurance but indications as to to what future funding there will be? Not really Um, I I guess all we've got to base it on is what was there last time but uh, you know, we have to um, produce a very, um, very um, impressive sort of business case, I guess, really to them to prove to them that um, the investment is worth it. So that's what will be going on over the next couple of months. Emirates, what have they said to you? Uh, again, you know, very supportive, but that's all part of Grant's European tour that will be starting in a couple of weeks, going to visit all the key sponsors, Emirates, and Espresso and Amiga and Camper and Sky. So uh, there's a bit of work to do there yet, but the initial um, responses from them have been very, very positive. I was talking to Emirates Team New Zealand's Chief Operating Officer, Kevin Shoebridge.
You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. Stephen Adams is on course to become just the fourth New Zealand-born basketballer to play in the NBA. When Oklahoma City Thunder picked Adams 12th in the NBA draft, most assumed he'd be a long-term project, spending most of his first season in the Development League. However, Adams' strong performances in pre-season matches means he's likely to be part of the rotation, allowing him to play alongside some of the game's biggest stars, including Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. Adams' centre position's been a struggle for the Thunder in recent seasons. Darnell Mabry, who covers the NBA for the Oklahoman newspaper, told Alex Coogan-Reeves what has most impressed him about the seven-foot New Zealander. That he can catch the ball. I take it that's something that's been lacking in the centre position at the Thunder? Lacking would be an understatement. Uh, you know, it, just the simple things that he can do, uh, I don't think fans are accustomed to seeing at that position at this point. So uh, the fact that he can catch and go back up and finish with a, with a finesse move or, or even a strong post move or a powerful dunk, those are the things that uh, really have impressed uh, the people of Oklahoma City so far. It all sort of came as a surprise because all the talk about him was that he was a project player and that we wouldn't even see him for the Thunder this year, but that seems to have all changed now. Yeah, it's quite possible. Uh, you know, He's in a battle with Hashim to beat for the backup spot, so uh, if he's definitely played better in the preseason than to beat did, so I think most people will agree that he at least deserves a shot to be the backup center. Uh, and then you have some people saying that he should be the starting center. So some way or another, Scott Brooks is going to have a decision to make uh, on how to divvy up playing time because he's proven himself worthy of minutes. Scott Brooks has sort of shown in the past that he's he's quite weary to throw new guys in and play them big minutes. Do, do you think he'll take a similar approach with Adams? It'll be interesting because in the past, uh, you know, all the young players that he was hesitant to play, uh, he had more experienced guys in front of him. Uh, and they were actually better at what he needed, what the team needed. Uh, in this case, the center position is one that is so inconsistent, and Adams just brings things that they don't necessarily have. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see if he sort of lets go of what he's done, the way he's always done things, and, and moves in a different direction and plays a young guy. The starting centre, Kendrick Perkins, he's um, much maligned for his offensive inability, I guess. Um, do you think he'd, he'd be feeling a bit of pressure from Adams now? I don't think this year he'll feel that pressure, but I think uh, he can see what's on the horizon. I think he knows that Stephen Adams has a lot of potential, and I think that uh, he knows that if it's not this year, it's going to be next year, that uh, Stephen Adams will probably take the starting job and, and probably either force them to move Perkins or... Uh, maybe move him to the bench. So uh, at some point, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. I mean, they use the high draft pick on Stephen Adams, and they're paying him uh, guaranteed money. So uh, he's definitely the future in Oklahoma City, and it's, it's just a matter of time before he uh, really cracks that rotations and becomes a star. Do you think there's a sense that maybe um, people are getting getting ahead of themselves a bit with Adams just because he's only played preseason yet, and it is quite different when you play in a real game with against, you know, he'd probably be scouted a bit harder and playing against uh, better players for longer. That's definitely fair. Uh, you know, Not only does, does Adams really not know what he's doing out there right now, and that, that intensity level is going to pick up, the skill level is going to pick up in the regular season, but opponents don't really know what he's doing. 
at this point. So uh, they don't have a scouting report on him uh, in terms of what he likes to do, how he's able to to, to knife his way into the into the lane and get rebounds and putbacks and, and roll to the basket, catch and finish, things like that. So uh, I think the more the league learns about him, it's definitely going to be an adjustment period that he's going to have to make uh, and step up his game even more to be able to counter that. But I guess that's something that we've seen from college to the combine to um, work out summer league preseason. He's sort of stepped up at every level, hasn't he? When we saw him in summer league, uh, he's much different, much better now than he was in July. So I think that's an encouraging sign for anybody paying attention to Stephen Adams and, and this Thunder team because he's going to get better uh, just naturally with time and experience. So uh, he definitely, by all accounts, has the work ethic and the, and the mindset to put in the work and, and, and try to improve. Uh, it's just a matter of, of being patient with him, I think, and, and not expecting too much too soon. Just from covering the team yourself, what have you sort of found Adams to be like as a person? He's got quite a different sort of character to a lot of the NBA players, doesn't he? I thought he was a big goofball at first, but uh, he's really a fun-loving guy, uh, down-to-earth, humble, uh, very appreciative of the opportunity that the Thunder has given him to come in here and and, and make a name for himself and and really put uh, New Zealand on the map. So um, I think in terms of the NBA and professional basketball, that is, but uh, you know, he's just really a humble guy, and, and uh, uh, you know, he's a pleasure to be around so far. Just about the Thunder in general, I guess. I guess for um, Stephen, so early in his career, he's managed to land in a pretty good situation there with some superstar players, and then also room for him to develop in that centre position. Yeah, I think he stepped into a good situation. I mean, this this organization has a history of developing young players, and and. Uh, helping them out in their careers. I mean, we've seen it with uh, Russell Westbrook and Serge Ibaka and Kevin Durant. Uh, the list goes on. So uh, James Harden uh, developed too much for them, unfortunately, and then they couldn't afford him and had to trade him. So uh, Stephen Adams is definitely in a good situation uh, with some of the talent that he's around and also the coaching staff and, and the way they've been able to work with young players. So uh, I think if he continues to, to, to work hard and have the right attitude, uh, you could say the sky's the limit for him because he's got physical tools and, and the size uh, to really make an impact in this league. He could have easily ended up in, in Toronto or or uh, Philadelphia, one of those teams, you know, that, that kind of picked right around where the Thunder picked uh, with that 12th pick. But he really was fortunate to, to come to a, an established team, and he might have to sit uh, for for uh, the start of the season or maybe even for a full season. We don't know yet, but I think in the long run, It'll pay off and he'll be better because of it. That's sports journalist Darnell Mabry from the Oklahoman newspaper. He was talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The Geraldine driver Hayden Padden gets his first competitive drive in a world rally car this weekend when he competes in the Rally of Spain. For the past couple of years, Padden has competed in the second-tier S2000 class in a number of WRC events. But he was invited to drive a Ford for the Qatar M-Sport World Rally Team. The German Terry Neuvel is currently second in the WRC standings, driving an M-Sport Ford. Patton got his first taste of the WRC car earlier this week, and he told Barry Guy that it's gone well. It was just good to, you know, they have that opportunity to feel their way into it, and and uh, was uh, surprised that we were able to get up to speed with it quite quickly. And uh, you know, we only did sort of 70 kilometres of testing, but 
already feel pretty comfortable in the car. How much different is it to the uh, class that you're normally in as far as actually driving the car? Uh, the, the handling is uh, actually very similar. Um, as the, the chassis are designed to the same sort of regulations. Uh, obviously, the big difference is, is the power um, and, and with the turbos. So it's uh, certainly more powerful and uh, you, you're carrying a lot more corner speed and you get out of the corners a lot quicker. Um, but, you know, from what we're used to, it's not a, not a huge uh, sort of adaption. So is, is your feeling that, you know, sort of, wow, this car is so much more responsive or has so much more? Oh, definitely. It's uh, certainly a pretty special feeling uh, to be driving the car. Like, uh, okay, it was a dream of mine to be, uh, be able to pilot an award-ready car uh, in a WRC rally, and, uh, you know, the, my expectations haven't let me down at all, and um, it's just, a, you know, it's an, an honour to have the opportunity to drive such a cool car. So how did this come about? Uh, a lot of hard work, really. Like, uh, okay, we've, we've been in the World Championship for three years now, and We've been working very hard in that time to try and get this opportunity and combined with some uh, recent good results and some, some good times and things at Rally Australia, um, we're able to get a, a couple of offers on the table actually after Australia and we worked through the options and, and this was the best one for us. So uh, it's a great opportunity, but it's obviously uh, one thing getting the opportunity. It's going to be a, a whole new ball game uh, trying to make the most of it. So do you get invited? Do you have to sort of pay in some way? How does that work? Oh, there is still some financial commitment from us, but uh, nowhere near uh, what you'd normally expect. And uh, basically, within uh, M Sport and, and Ford, the team that we're driving for, you know, they they wanted to give us an opportunity. They they want to see uh, what we can do. Um, but being in a world rally car gives us a chance not to only try and impress uh, Ford and, and M Sport, but also a chance to try and impress the other teams that we're talking with uh, regarding next year. So this is an opportunity to try and impress, obviously. Oh, definitely. Like, it's uh, just a one-off event at this stage, but basically it's, it's aimed towards helping the talks and the discussions that we're having with various people uh, about next year. And ultimately, you, we, we want to be in a World Rally Car next year, and, and that's what this is all about. So, OK, we're not expected to come here and win. That's completely unrealistic to do that in your first time in, in a World Rally Car. But if we can be competitive, uh, get to the finish, and and try and uh, show glimpses of what we can do, then it would be mission accomplished. So does your approach to this weekend's rally change because of the car you're in and possible future, you know, uh, opportunities? Oh, there certainly I'd be lying if I said there, there wasn't any more pressure on, because, uh, you know, there, there certainly is more pressure. Um, but in saying that, we, we are trying to treat it like any other rally. Uh, we don't want to get too tied up and and uh, what we're driving or the, the, the different competition that we're up against. We just need to relax and, and do what we normally do and then when we get behind the wheel of the car, um, obviously give it our best shot and, and see what comes about from that. So do you look to go flat out and impress or finish? What you know? Is, have you looked at that uh, sort of scenario? Uh, I think I think it's very important that we try and finish this rally. Um, we need to... to to get as much experience in these cars as possible, and, and the only time, or well, the only way you can do that is by uh, doing as many stages as possible. And I think there will be a, a, a very much a progression throughout the rally. You know, we, we need to start at a comfortable speed, get used to the car, get used to the environment, get used to the speed, and then as the weekend progresses, uh, try and step the speed up. So, um, you know, I think hopefully by the end of the rally, uh, we can be starting to set some good times.
So is it uh, sort of the op- uh, opportunity, you know, you're looking forward to, you're now in a competitive car with the likes of Augier and all of those sorts of things, the Finns and all those great drivers, to just sort of see where you now sort of sit or rank? Yeah, it's um, okay. It's obviously yeah, it's a dream come true to be uh, competing against those same those guys and, and to be on the same timesheets. And of course, uh, the benchmark is very very high. Um, you know, they're all very fast drivers. They're like, you know, they, they are the best drivers in the world. So um, for us to be uh, beating them uh, won't won't be possible this weekend. Um, and and you know, we're not expected to be up there with them either. But in saying that, it does give us a chance to compare against them. Um, and if we can get close on some stages then I think that'd be good. But, you know, no one in the history of the World Championship has, has ever gone out and, and won a rally on their debut or, or even been in the top three sort of thing. So um, we have to remain realistic and, and be positive and, and try and learn as much as we can out of the weekend. And so what about the uh, the Spanish uh, roads? How are they looking? Course to your liking? Oh, definitely. It's uh, quite an enjoyable rally. It's um, a, bit, a bit of a challenge, this one, as it's, it's the only mixed surface event in the Championship. So... Uh, the first two days are on tarmac and then the final days on gravel, uh, which gives us a chance to, to learn and, and drive the car on both surfaces, which is great. And, uh, you know, I love the roads here. We've done the rally for the last two years, so we've, we had some experience here and, and it should play into our hands. That's rally driver Hayden Patton talking to Barry Guy. Wellington and Canterbury contest the National Provincial Rugby Premiership title this weekend, with Wellington hoping to overcome a horror history of finals results over the past decade. Wellington's been the form team this season and with home advantage, hoping success may finally come their way. Here's rugby reporter Barry Guy. Referee's having a very close look. That's a wonderful scrum and they've won. Fantastic. Celebrations from Wellington. It's been a long time between drinks for the men from the capital. They last won in 2000 with the likes of Jonah Lomu, Christian Cullen, Norm Hewitt and Tana Umanga leading them to victory over Canterbury. Since then, Wellington has made the final six times and been beaten in all six of them. The Wellington coach, Chris Boyd, was an assistant coach in the early 2000s. He certainly knows what it's like to miss out on a title. I was involved in three failed finals in 2003, 4 and 6 and it's not a nice feeling and there's a lot of guys here that have been on the wrong end of, uh, of finals and semi-finals so there's a determination amongst the group that we need to change that. You can't hide away from the reality of history. And the reality of history is that Wellington in the last 10 years has made lots of semis and finals and hasn't converted it, so you've got to embrace that. Canterbury have won the last five provincial titles. They've beaten Wellington in two of those. Coach Scott Robertson played in 2000, but was in many of Canterbury's successful sides. However, this time he's bidding for his first title as coach. We've always talked about we've got a legacy that others have provided us the opportunity to uphold and, and that's just another chance on, on Saturday night. So we need we know there's no guarantees at all uh, and we've got to perform and I think that's held us in good stead for the last five. And someone that has played and won the last five is the Canterbury captain George Whitelock. He says what's happened in the past doesn't hold much weight with him. That's all history, it's not really going to matter and it hasn't been talked about all this week. It's it's about this game and this this team this year so... You know, there's a lot of new personnel on this team and I guess we've got a, a different style as well. So, yeah, the boys are really looking forward to the challenge because it's, it's going to be a big one up there. You know, Wellington have led the way all season. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Yes, Wellington topped the standings throughout the competition and lost just one match to earn home field advantage in the playoffs. 
Someone that would have loved to have been running out for Wellington this weekend is their experienced lock, Jeremy Thrush. He's been with the All Blacks during the provincial competition, but likes what he's seen from his boys. None of that history has really affected them, to be fair. You know, they, they've just, you know, be focused and pretty driven on and playing some good rugby. And, you know, I think that showed in their county's, you know, semi-final. A lot of teams in Wellington in the past have probably maybe gone to their shell and just tried to win the game, but they still wanted to play some good, exciting rugby and, you know, the, the boys that were there have done a, a bloody good job all year, so I'm pretty sure they'll be able to do it again on a Saturday night. So two combative sides should produce an entertaining game. If there was ever a rugby player who was probably never going to be a star, but whose hard work was going to get in places, then it's Wellington lock Jeremy Thrush. Thrush has been part of several unsuccessful Wellington final sides, but he'll miss this season's finale because he's on all-black duty. The 28-year-old Thrush has been a long-time servant for Wellington and the Hurricanes and was called into the national side for the June internationals against France because of injuries. Since then, he's taken his chances and last week got his first start in the win over Australia. Barry Guy caught up with Thrush about his new found status. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been good. It's been a bit of a, uh, I guess, a bit of a learning, learning curve for me um, playing international rugby, but um, it's been really enjoyable and, and uh, on Saturday uh, that's... 40, 40, odd, 40 odd minutes was uh, went pretty quickly, but it was uh, it was good good fun. Yeah. So what's the, what's sort of been the main thing different for you? Uh, I guess just learning you know how the the way the All Blacks uh, you know do things in, during the week. But um, I think the main thing on the weekend was just the intensity and, and the speed of the game was a lot quicker than what I've experienced before. Uh, you've obviously been given specific sort of things. I mean, you were the kickoffs and those sorts of things as one of your sort of areas to sort of take charge in. Yeah, you know, I guess that you know you got set roles from a from a lock's point of view, and you know that the kickoff and that's you know part of that. So it was good to you know they, they kicked a little bit to my side and, and got to got in the, get in the game a little bit early, and, and, and you know I just grew from conf- in, in confidence from there really. Yeah, uh, you sort of it, it, well, you know, you became an all-back sort of later in your career after quite a successful Hurricanes things. How, how do you sort of feel about it now? You know that you've had sort of half a dozen games involved. Uh, with the All Blacks, yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of, yeah. How do you take it now? Uh, I feel a, a lot more settled. To be fair, the, you know, the, when I first got in there in the French series, you know, I'm just trying to find my feet a little bit. But you know, people say feel comfortable. But I guess you know that environment, you never feel too comfortable. But which is good, you know, you're always on your toes. But I just feel settled in the environment, and, and I think uh, to be fair, having a little bit of you know a, a few years behind me in, in the Hurricanes and stuff like that is, um, you know, I feel probably feel a little bit better for it and, and, and feel um, like it's helped me to, to fit in with the, with the All Blacks a bit quicker. You've always been known for your sort of drive and intensity and you know if you look at the likes of Sam Whitelock and that sort of thing just the amount of work that they get involved in is required now at that uh, level for a lock. Yeah you know they, they I guess um, they play a, a big part you know um, you know they want you to clean rucks and you know carry ball and, and, and get your hands on the, on the ball a little bit so you know I enjoy that I you know I like to have a high, you know, I think I have quite a high work rate and um, just seeing how those guys go at as well, you know, you learn a little bit from them as well, which is good. Exciting going on a, in, you know, a proper tour, end of year tour? Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you know, I just, it was kind of just focused on, on last week and now that I'm, you know, I've been named in that squad and, and going away, I'm pretty excited to, uh, you know, have some more time in the All Blacks camp. I just, I suppose it goes just to show how, um, much work is required and level you have to play because you're competing for a position. You know, even there are five locks on this tour now. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, how they're going to, how, how it's all going to work. But 
you know, um, just you know, when I was in there as a the wider group and then got called in, you know, it's you're always competing but trying to, you know, help each other at the same time, which is which is quite a good, you know, it's good, you know, you learn but you you're pushing each other to to be better as well. So with five of us there, you know, there'll be a, I guess we'll have to share the workload a little bit and um, you know, just I guess it'll be good to you know rub shoulders with some of those other boys and learn learn a bit off them as well. And play some big matches, possibly in some of those big, you know, famous European stadiums. Yeah, you know, I've I've played one game at Twickenham as a charity game, but you know, you know, those to play against a team like that or be involved in a test match like that would be would be pretty awesome. So I'll be doing all I can to you know hopefully get out there and, and get some game time. Now, of course, uh, you're not involved in Wellington in the final this uh, weekend. How does that feel? Uh, oh, it, it feels good. I'm, you know, like I'm. I'd love to be there, but you know, I guess I've got you know I've got other things on, on my mind at the moment. But um, just I've watched them as much as I can this year, and I really enjoyed the way they've been going, and they look like they're enjoying themselves and the way they're playing. So you know the, the boys that were there have done a, a bloody good job all year. So I'm pretty sure they'll be able to do it again on a Saturday night. Yeah, old foes, and of course the history with Wellington. They've been in so many finals and that sort of thing. Do you think they can topple Canterbury? Yeah, I, I, I to be fair, I don't think it really. It's from just being around the boys, none of that history has really affected them. To be fair, you know they they just you know be focused and pretty driven on and playing some good rugby and you know I think that showed in that county's you know semi final. A lot of teams in Wellington in the past have probably maybe gone to their shell and just tried to win the game, but they still wanted to play some good exciting rugby and and it was enjoyable to watch. That's all black lock. Jeremy Thrush talking to Barry Guy. The Silver Ferns are in the midst of a three-test confidence-building series against Malawi as they try to put behind them the disappointment of the 4-1 Constellation Cup series loss to Australia. New Zealand easily won the opening test against the leading African nation, 70-32, and they now play again in Napier and then in Hamilton. But no matter how the series pans out, the Silver Ferns captain Casey Kopua concedes it can't turn around what's been a disappointing year. Clearly we're... We're embarrassed by by what that that series um, was. Um, you know, there's been a few things come out in the stats. Um, even though things are very close, it's just those small things that can make a difference for us. A lot of talk about midcourt, especially wing attack. Was that the difference? The lack of experience there? Um, well, in the stats, no, that's not what shows up. So, um, but I think you know the way that Shannon um, and Anna came in and Courtney. Um, I think they did a great job, and for me. Um, I think they exceeded what people um, expected of them. So um, I think that's great, you know, and they can only go up from here. What did the stats show? Um, We need to get more rebounds um, in the defensive end. Um, And also we just need to um, score our turnover ball because obviously, you know, we get the same amount of centre passes, but those turnovers are, are hugely precious. Surprised by by some of those stats, the the rebounding yeah, maybe in particular. Yeah, well, you know, as you play the game and you think you see, you know, you know what's going on, but then the stats don't lie and you see that sort of stuff written down. And you think far out, okay, it is really just the small things that can you know help help you not lose by one point. The, that lack of experience, though, some of those players, Leanna Leosa, not there, a, few, a couple of others out through injury as well, that, that, that must take a toll, though. Yeah, I think it does. Um, and, you know, having new people in, um, we need more time together, obviously, but um, that's how we're going to grow depth. And, you know, we have to get people out on court and give them the opportunity. And um, I think when I first made it, you're either going to sink or swim. So 
Um, and a lot of the girls that um, come or are here, they want to swim. They don't want to sink and, you know, be a one-hit wonder. So um, we all want to be better. And um, I think this series um, against Malawi is going to be, you know, good confidence boosting for us, but also a good um, series to try new things at the same time. What do you want from the series against Malawi? Uh, we want 3-0, obviously. We want to go out there and win. Um, but also it's just um, probably doing a bit more the practising of sorts of things in a game where there is maybe time. Um, we certainly won't be underestimating them um, and we'll be having preparing um, the same as you do for Australia. Is the focus now all about Glasgow? Um, no, I wouldn't say that. We know that that's our long term, um, the next pinnacle event, and everything we do now, it's pretty much what have we done today to help us um, for the for that pinnacle event, but we need to get through these um, the test series first. For you, the series, plenty of time on court is what you want, or is it a case, do you think, you, you might take a bit of a, a break? No, I hope to get out there. It's, it looks exciting, um, and every time we do play them, it is exciting, but it's also that, that thinking about next year at the same time, so it's... I think I've been managed since I was about 17, so I'm used to it. you just got to deal with it. Um, but it's just whatever's best for the team. You talk about the opportunity to try a few things. What, what in particular do you want to maybe try in this series? Um, I think there's just new people, new lineups that we can get out on the court. Um, but personally, it's just getting that timing, the timing going, get more ball, um, and putting yourself under pressure, you know, test yourself. Um, you know, sometimes you may be able to get the ball off them when you're closer, but maybe take a little step back and see how that goes. Um, but you don't want to do that too much to, um, you know, to the detriment of the team. With Glasgow around the corner, there's no, no Australia in between now and then. Is that a good thing or not? Um, when I think about it, it does make me a little bit nervous. Um, but I think we've, you know, we've had you know five games against them, and we've we've done our homework, and we're going to keep doing our homework. So um, it's just keeping them in the back of the mind um, and making sure that we're aware of how good they actually are. It must be tough in a way for Malawi, playing against Malawi in the sense you're expected to win so easily, but yeah. if, if they get close, it's not. That's seen as a failure. It does kind of feel like there's going to be a lot of pressure. And, you know, Australia beat them by 47 and then 27. So we're not going to be complacent, but we are going to be confident in our abilities. Um, but we want to go out there and, and beat them. Does it, I mean, looking back on, on 2013, you've, you've got this series against Malawi, but is it going to feel a bit... Bit, a bit of a sour taste for 2013, given the way things did unfold? A little bit. You know, you set targets and you set goals, and when you don't achieve them, you know, you don't feel very good. And I think even though it's not just Malawi, but beating Malawi will give us confidence back again, and, and that's what we need um, leading into next year. I was talking to Silver Ferns captain Casey Kapoor. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, you can email us at sport at radioNZ.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Thanks for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.